Just before we start, I want to say that when we were recording this episode, as a COVID precaution, I was wearing a mask, so my voice is a bit muffled. Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting from Willoughby. She would have been ashamed. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 16 to 20 of Sense and Sensibility. Do you have a hundred word summary? Yes, I do. I actually found this one much easier to summarise than some of the earlier ones because you can either go into a lot of detail about everything or give a quite simple overview. So I've gone for the quite simple overview. Really about three things happen, don't they? Yes. So my hundred word summary is Marianne indulges her grief at Willoughby's departure. Edward turns up unexpectedly and stays at Barton for a week. He occasionally says quietly humorous things, but he is also quite depressed, and Eleanor is puzzled and a bit hurt. After Edward leaves, Sir John is visited by Lady Middleton's sister, Mrs Palmer, and her husband. And that's basically my summary. Well, I've said exactly the same things more or less in it, but I've put a little bit more. Marianne continues to indulge her misery, rejecting all efforts of companionship. Edward then arrives to stay for a week and revives his teasing but serious conversation with the sisters. He seems depressed and Eleanor feels he is colder towards her, but she is cheered by the belief he has a lock of her hair in a ring. He departs, but almost immediately his place as the centre of interest at Barton is taken by the Palmers and their surprising marital relationship. I found it interesting that we both used the word indulges for Marianne. All right. I don't know if it's actually in the chapters, but I think it really does sum up her approach to her grief. She's just wallowing in it. Well, that's what Jane Austen says she's yes, doing. True. I mean, that's one of the things I was going to say after I thought about it. I thought, look, what does Marianne do? She's upset, so she doesn't then sit around the place and say, oh, Willoughby, oh, I'm so miserable. She takes herself off. They'd like to have more time to be nice to her. It's only for three or four days. She just takes herself for long walks and cries, but she doesn't come up and make them listen and listen as she goes over and over it. I mean, really. They do have to put up with listening to her playing really depressing music. Yeah, but still, (laughs) they have to listen to her playing music wherever she is. The real problem is that she doesn't let them do anything that makes them feel a bit better. Mm. But I think, you know, in some ways, Jane Austen is a bit hard on her. Mm. Later on, when Eleanor is upset, Eleanor makes them feel upset because she sort of more or less says, nothing the matter, nothing the matter, when they know there is. Mm. I suppose the criticism of Marianne is because she's not trying to pull herself together. She's basically saying, I am upset and I am going to revel in being upset. Yes. Rather than saying, I am upset but life goes on and Willoughby will come back and I'm going to just get on with life. Well, I I think this is the difference with this bit anyway. She truly thinks Willoughby's only gone for a little while. Her real collapse comes when he's no longer there and she's got no hope. So I'm just wondering, what does Marianne actually think Willoughby is doing while he's away? Because she is revelling in her grief, which suggests she feels she's going to be parted from him for a very long time. But then... 
when they talk about Willoughby possibly being gone for months, Marianne then says, months, cried Marianne with strong surprise. No, nor many weeks. And yeah. I, my reaction to that has always been, if she's so sure he's only going to be gone a few weeks, why is she so grief-stricken? I tend to feel that this is Jane Austen's first serious book, that there were some things she sort of made bits of muddles with. The backstory here is not really as clear as it should be. Mm. That I don't think she's thought out what Willoughby's doing. And she doesn't even know in her own mind what they said to one another yeah. when they were breaking up. Yeah, I, I think that's the key point. Not only does Eleanor not know and Mrs Dashwood not know what they said to each other, yes. and we, the reader, don't know, you're right, I think possibly Jane Austen doesn't know either, or if she does, it's very, Amorphous. very hidden. Yes, always through this one, you feel Jane Austen is not, she isn't as good here as she soon became. Yes. In spite of having wonderful material and it mm. being a really interesting conception. Mm. One thing I was thinking about these chapters in particular, as I was reading them, I was making notes about how we're again seeing this contrast between Eleanor and Marianne, which I've talked about in our previous episodes, and I'll probably talk about again because it is key to the book. But we've kind of got two things happening here in this distinction between Eleanor and Marianne. One of them is Marianne's very passionate response to beauty and art and although there are some differences in how they respond and there's a bit of teasing happening I don't think Jane Austen is necessarily disapproving of that in the same way as we're also seeing this difference between Marianne indulging her grief and then in these chapters we also see Eleanor being surprised by Edward but not indulging her grief in the same way and Eleanor and as we said Jane Austen being critical of Marianne for this indulgence of her feelings and her emotions as compared to her engagement with art. No, I agree with yeah. that. And in a sense, when I start talking about what sensibility means in this novel, I'll be talking about a lot more of that. Yeah, which is going to be later in this episode. Yes. One of the things I suppose that struck me as I started reading through that chapter was they're all looking at one another's feelings. Ellen is looking at what Marianne's feeling. As soon as Edward arrives, Marianne's looking at what Ellen is feeling. They're both peering at Edward. <laughs> What's Edward feeling? Mm. And I suppose the other thing, this section, makes you see what Edward's like. Yes. He can be funny. He can be, you know, he can be teasing. He can be serious. But on the other hand, he really is very much drawing attention to himself and making a mystery of it. Oh, I'm so sad. Oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> no, I can't tell you what's the matter with me. Yes, I've got to go away in a week. No, I can't stay longer than a week. No, I can't mm. tell you why. He's sort of drawing this attention and this sympathy. Mm. And that side's just a little bit unappealing, I feel, <laughs> about Edward, even though you can completely see why Marianne and Eleanor enjoy his company because he takes so seriously this joint interest and that Jane Austen has in all their enjoyment of art and why is it good at the books they're reading. Well, actually, when I was reading this section, it's one of the notes I had down, I was remembering back when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice and particularly in the section at Netherfield, you talked about how they like talking about things. They like exploring ideas and concepts and personality and I was looking at the discussions that the family and Edward have in these three and a half chapters that Edward is with them 
Yes. And they talk about character. They talk about wealth versus happiness. And that, yes. yeah, there's that wonderful line where Eleanor and Marianne have a completely different notion of what wealth <laughs> constitutes. Yeah. Um, they talk about the nature of landscape. They have that really nice conversation about affectation where Marianne is expressing her genuine love for nature but sometimes doesn't want to because it's cliche. Yes. And then Edward goes so far in the other direction that Eleanor says that's actually an affectation of its own. And yet they're analysing Edward's character. That is the same kinds of conversations they have at Neverfield. Oh, yes. And the kinds of conversations I think they feel they can't have with the Middletons or with Mrs Jennings or with the Palmers or presumably with anyone else in the neighbourhood. I'm not even convinced they really have these in-depth conversations with Willoughby. I think No, like, I was just thinking that Marianne says something and Willoughby says, oh, you're so right, you're so right, and then takes it a bit further. That's mm. the impression you get there. Yeah. They don't have these not exactly opposed but these modifying points yes. of view yeah. where somebody says such and such and the other person says, yes, you're right, but what about? Yeah. Or, yes, you're right, but that also makes me think Whereas Willoughby, you get the impression, is really just reflecting. Yes. Reflecting and maybe expanding, but not taking it into new and interesting areas. Yes. Now, going back to what you said earlier, the other thing I think with Edward is these are the three and a half chapters in the book where we really see him most. Because we commented back in our first episode, even though he's present at Norland, he has one line of dialogue and the whole (laughs) time we're told about him and Eleanor, we don't see it. In these chapters, we do see it. Bit, I hadn't picked up on what you were saying, that he's so much about himself, it's actually sometimes a bit unappealing. Yes. I was more focusing on he is emerging as a character, and he does make jokes. Now, sometimes they're a bit ponderous, but he does like teasing Marianne. He also makes jokes at his own expense. One of the things he says of himself, talking about his profession, I always preferred the church, as I still do, but that was not smart enough for my family. They recommended the army. That was a great deal too smart for me. There's little aphorisms, is that the right term for it? Yes, it's like that with this balance in them. Yes. Which is a sort of a fairly 18th century thing to have that balance. Yes, and it's self-deprecating, it's quietly clever, it's beautifully balanced. Even though you have these little bits here, somehow you don't go away with a general impression that this is what Edward is like. But when you look at these three and a half chapters closely... He has his jokes with Marianne. As I said, some of them are a bit ponderous, but some aren't. He has self-deprecating lines like that. that And and then sort of the lovely one where he says, Marianne, I've been guessing, (laughs) I guess Mr Willoughby. Mm. So again, he's quite perceptive. I mean, you can see exactly why when he turned up at Norland, they enjoyed his company. Well, again, when they've had John and Fanny to deal with. No, but even so, and they're lovely for him. Mm. They do fit together. Mm. And you can see, in a way, even more than with Marianne and Willoughby, that Eleanor and Edward really do have something in common. Yeah. And sort of similar views. I found that stuff about the ring... A bit embarrassing somehow that they should think he's been sneaking around with a pair of scissors trying to cut off Eleanor's hair. Well, Eleanor's the only one that thinks that because the others think Eleanor gave him her hair. Yes. But also, and this is something that was mentioned by Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stern in Talking of Jane Austen. Yes. How unbelievably incredible is it? He's got this ring. It's in his face 
all the time. Why did he not take it off before he arrived there? It can't give him any pleasure to see it. Yes, and it means it's not as though he cares about Lucy Steele. (laughs) Unless it's a kind of flagellation. He's committed to this and he, he has to go through with it so he won't let himself do something that would have made it easier, which is take off the ring and hide it. He yeah. forces himself to keep wearing the ring because he has to. Yes, that could be almost like something saying, don't go too far, that it's yes. a sort of a reminder. On the other hand, you could almost see it the other way around, as know that picture I had of him wanting to draw attention to himself. <laughs> so he wants them to notice it. Yes. He's happy to know that they've noticed it so he can make a mystery of it. It's just that sort of attention drawing that in spite of him pretending, he, d- he doesn't think about himself mm. at all. Another little point is the picture of Mrs Dashwood. She's being presented always as a sort of a supporter of Marianne against Eleanor's sense. She's yep. being sensibility. So Eleanor has to persuade her not to have too many servants, not to sort of think she can change the house. Yeah. But what also comes through, though, is... Marianne sort of accused Eleanor of being too conventional, too wanting to stick by the conventions. But Mrs Dashwood is like that too. First of all, when she was visiting people, I think in the last section, she wouldn't return visits unless she could get there without having to borrow a horse. Mm. And here we've got it in this one where it says, Mrs Dashwood, who did not choose to dine with them, that's the Middletons, oftener than they dined at the cottage, absolutely refused on her own account. Her daughters might do as they pleased. Mm. So she is really living by these social conventions. Mm. I think it's also a sense that she doesn't want to owe anything to anyone, which maybe also gives you an idea that for all she has these plans of improving the cottage, she would never go into debt to do it. Well, I think that what we're really told is though that she may be just sort of a bit too sure everything will come right. Yes. And that's where Eleanor's pulling her back a yeah. bit. But yeah. at the same time, I think she might commit to something that they can't afford and then get in a terrible mess about it. Because she misjudged. Yes. But she would have thought she was judging within the parameters yeah. of what's the appropriate thing to do. Yeah. These chapters in particular, this is where it starts to feel like Barton Cottage is a railway station. Because (laughs) you've had Colonel Brandon arrives, then Willoughby arrives, then Colonel Brandon leaves, then Willoughby leaves, then Edward arrives, then Edward leaves, then then the the Palmers arrive and the Palmers leave and the Steels arrive. (laughs) It's like they're this still centre and people are coming and going and coming and going. There's nothing wrong with it, but it does feel a bit... It's, again, a bit of the ineptitude that you feel in this novel as compared with the others. The difference with Pride and Prejudice is that you're still getting people come, people go. So many people are not there for a lot of the book. But it doesn't feel quite the same way, and I think that's because Elizabeth is travelling. So you have people coming and going in the Longbourn area. Then Elizabeth goes to stay with Charlotte, and so there's different people there. Then she comes back to Longbourn bit of a change there then she goes on her trip then she comes back to Longbourn so it's not like a static center that people are coming and going the change of people is both at Longbourn and away from Longbourn so it just feels a bit more coherent otherwise it's it's fairly like a sort of almost a broad comic thing at the theater where this one comes in and then no sooner are they gone someone else one thing that struck me and I'd never noticed it before 
it's about this idea of servants so often being invisible in Jane Austen. Yeah. When Edward arrives, it says that they see it was a man on horseback riding towards them. So I'm picturing this man on horseback surrounded by nothing. Yeah. And then when Marianne thinks it's Willoughby, the person is not tall enough for him and has not his air. So again, I'm thinking solo man on horse. Yeah. Then we learn that Edward dismounted and giving his horse to his servant. Yes. So obviously it wasn't a man on horseback. It was a gentleman on horseback accompanied by a servant, presumably also on horseback. And yet the servant is invisible until he is given the reins of Edward's horse. I'm totally accustomed to the servants never get names. But this servant is literally invisible. It says it was a man on horseback. It doesn't say it was a gentleman on horseback. No, it's no. Man. It's just... That's it, it's quite surprising. Even though we feel throughout most of this book that Jane Austen is very pro-Eleanor and quite anti-Marianne in a lot of ways, the author does say in connection with Eleanor, we know that she's quite mortified by Edward's seeming indifference to her. But then as he's going, the author says, it was happy for her that he had a mother whose character was so imperfectly known to her as to be the general excuse for everything strange on the part of her son. Yeah. And then the author also says, with all the candid allowances and generous qualifications which had been rather more painfully extorted from her for Willoughby's service by her mother. Yeah. So the author is saying that Eleanor is actually having double standards for Edward and Willoughby, much more willingly giving Edward the benefit of the doubt over Willoughby. Yes. She is being a little bit critical of Eleanor. Yes. Or she's saying this was natural. I mean, you never know that yeah. she isn't approving. She may not be disapproving, but she is definitely laughing at Eleanor for yes. that double standard. Yes, yes. There's this one little thing which is just using these books as a basis for social history. Now, one of the things I was just interested in is when Edward runs through all the professions he could have, yeah. there's no medicine. Hmm. Medicine has not at that stage been brought into the gentlemanly professions. Yeah. By the 1830s, 1840s, the physicians have made it there. Mm. And the surgeons are sort of making it by the 1830s, 40s. Well, not all surgeons. Even by the end of the Victorian period, the apothecaries are just making it. But it's just interesting, it's not there. No medical men <laughs> have made it into Jane Austen's view of a profession mm. at that time. Mm. Did you have a favourite sentence? Well, I had a terrible trouble finding them. No, I had some sort of little favourite passages, but no real favourite sentence. Tell me yours and I'll just tell you. I actually had quite a lot of sentences I highlighted as possible favourites. Well, that, that was the point. There was nothing that you thought, oh, that is just gorgeous. Yeah. But um, there were a lot that were quite funny. Yeah, so there, well, there's one I'm going to talk about when we get to talking about the Palmers. I've already done Edward's little aphorism about smartness. And I love Eleanor's response to Marianne about dear, dear Lawland and Eleanor yeah. saying... Not everyone has yes, your passion yes. for... But I think the one I'm going to choose is one I hadn't actually noticed before this rereading. It's about Sir John Middleton when he's inviting them just after Edward has gone, I think. He says, you must drink tea with us tonight, said he, for we shall be quite alone. And tomorrow you must absolutely dine with us, for we shall be a large party. Yeah. <laughs> No matter what the circumstance, it's still in his mind imperative that they... they <laughs> yes, that they, that they need them there. Yes. I just chose one of the ones out of the passage where Edward is running through his professions. And the one I thought, because I thought it had sort of a nice little ironic twist in it, 
where he says, The law was allowed to be genteel enough. Many young men who had chambers in the temple made a very good appearance in the first circles and drove about town in very knowing gigs. <laughs> so I just, you know, I just like the way he's being funny about the kind of language and the approach his parents have to a profession. Nothing about whether it's a worthwhile thing to be doing. <laughs> yes. It is. But can you look smart? Can you drive around and look in, good? In a nice carriage. Yes. For this episode, the character or characters we want to talk about are Mr and Mrs Palmer. The feeling I, I've got with them is it's really quite a strange sort of presentation of these characters. In some ways, they just seem burlesques. You know, yes. you've got this crazy couple where the man is so rude and the woman is so silly and fluffy and dizzy about it. Mm. And yet somehow they don't come through quite as though they're being burlesqued. It's almost a bit too straightforward, just the way she's presented them. You could believe... There really were people like them. Possibly that Mr Palmer is a great poseur and that he's putting on this persona. But somehow it comes through almost too straightforward. He's too unpleasant. He's too out and out rude and nasty in what he says. It's not like he's being witty at other people's expense. He's just being rude. And you don't get the impression that this is sort of almost a comic role he's doing, mm. that he's being the great grump. I think the Middleton's response, or the family's response to him, is as though he was one of these people who was being a grumpy old man. Mm. And he says all these terrible things, and everyone goes, ho, 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 listen to Mr Palmer. See, some things he says kind of fit in with that, such as when he says, what the devil does Sir John mean by not having a billiard room in his house? How few people know what comfort is. Sir John is as stupid as the weather. Now that I can see as being a pose and people could be going, oh, you know, ha, ha, ha. Very witty. It's almost like sub Oscar Wilde talking about Sir John being as stupid as the weather. Yes. But then opposing that, you've got things like, I did not know I contradicted anybody in calling your mother ill-bred. That's just mean. It is nasty, yes. Mm. I feel that Mr. and Mrs. Palmer are like a first draft of Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. They're not exactly the same. And in fact, Mrs. Palmer is much nicer than Mrs. Bennett. Yes. While almost ditzier. But it just doesn't quite work because Mr. Palmer isn't as witty as Mr. Bennett. As we talked about with Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Bennett actually isn't a very good father and isn't very sensitive, but when he says things, I don't think he is ever as out-and-out out rude, particularly outside the family circle. So, yeah, when he's saying things when Eleanor and Marianne are present, that is beyond the family circle. I don't think Mr. Bennett would do that beyond the family circle, no matter what. And even when he says it within the family circle, it's this kind of... For the really stupid members of the family, they might take it at face value and not actually see that he's criticising them. Yeah. Mr Palmer, you kind of can't believe that Mrs Palmer just accepts it so much. And that Mrs Jennings also yes. goes along with it. And Sir John. Occasionally Lady Middleton seems to think he's gone a bit far. Yeah, seems to think he's a bit ill-bred. Yes. <laughs> but again, I think perhaps you have to almost put this down as not terribly good character drawing yes. with Jane Austen mm. that she hasn't pulled it off because she doesn't want you uh, much later on when Marianne arrives at their house sick 
Mr. Palmer does everything yes. that they well, could expect. They, they actually both do. They've taken Marianne into their house and then everything is turned upside down. Mrs. Palmer has to leave their house with her baby because Marianne's brought infection into it. They don't complain, they, they just do it. Which is a kindly thing. Yes. It is, in one sense, Mr. Palmer is rather a nice picture of the sort of young man who's come into his property and has got to do the right thing by becoming a member of Parliament and going <laughs> around making everybody like him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you could almost see him as a sort of rather sharp, not terribly witty young man. But it feels really odd, doesn't yeah. it, the way they yeah. go on. And then Mrs Palmer also, as I said, I feel like it's kind of a first attempt at what she does better with the Bennets. But I somehow don't see Mrs Palmer going into the complainer that Mrs Bennet is. Oh, no. Um, I think she's possibly even less intelligent than Mrs Bennet. But she has these beautiful lines like, Mr Palmer does not hear me, said she laughing. He never does sometimes. It is so ridiculous. (laughs) He never does sometimes. And then the, yes, we know Mr Willoughby very well. I've never spoken to him, of course. (laughs) But Mrs Palmer is a lovely comic character. She's a Jane Austen-style comic character. You know exactly what's going on. Mr Palmer, you know, you don't know, is he a horrible man? Mm. Is he putting on an act? The way the others respond to him, perhaps you have to think he's putting on an act, but it doesn't come through like that. There's a paragraph that I might read out the whole lot, even though it's a bit long, which is Eleanor's analysis of his character, where Eleanor says, and this is, again, one of my favourite sentences, his temper might perhaps be a little soured by finding, like many others of his sex, that through some unaccountable bias in favour of beauty, he was the husband of a very silly woman. Now, I'll just time out from that a second and say, all the descriptions in Pride and Prejudice we had of Mr and Mrs Bennet, which we gradually built up this real picture of their marriage. I think nothing encapsulates it as well as that sentence. And it's, even though the personalities are different, that describes how the Bennets can be married just as much. And she does it so beautifully in Sense and Sensibility. And although we get the picture in Pride and Prejudice and it's well drawn and put together, she doesn't ever have a single beautiful sentence like that. No. Well, of course, by the time she was putting Pride and Prejudice together, she'd already said it. Yes. <laughs> when she'd said it in Sense and Sensibility, yeah. she didn't have another chance. Yeah. But then what comes after that, and this is what I was really moving on to, which is Eleanor's analysis of him. Yes. It says that Eleanor knew that this kind of blunder was too common for any sensible man to be lastingly hurt by it. It was rather a wish of distinction, she believed, which produced his contemptuous treatment of everybody and his general abuse of everything before him. It was the desire of appearing superior to other people. The motive was too common to be wondered at, but the means, however they might succeed by establishing his superiority in ill-breeding, were not likely to attach anyone to him except his wife. So I think that is what Jane Austen is intending us to see, that as you said, he is being a poser and he's doing it because he wants to appear superior to everyone else, which is, after all, what Mr Bennett is doing as well, but he's doing it better. Yes. Possibly just because Mr Bennett is older, because Mr Palmer, it says he's a brave-looking young man of five or six and twenty. Yes. Yeah, I think it's just a case of possibly she knew what she wanted, but she just didn't quite hit the mark with him in the way she did with Mr Bennett later on. Yes. You keep noticing these little ineptitudes coming Mm, through, in through a whole lot of, you know, wonderful stuff. Mm. But as we said, later on in the book, Charlotte Palmer's good humour, you kind of would expect her to 
stay a bit hysterical but respond appropriately when Marianne is sick. You don't necessarily expect Mr. Palmer to rise to the occasion in, in the same And which way. he does, yes. yes. It may not be just he's a young man who's married the wrong sort of wife. He's a young man who knows he's got to have a public persona. He wants to genuinely get on and, mm. and do something in the world. And he's just sort of fiddling around trying to find the, the form of presentation which will let him keep his... Oh, I suppose his self-respect mm. while he is having to go around yes. the country being nice yeah. to everybody. Possibly in terms of his self-respect, he's actually now become a little bit embarrassed about the silliness of his wife and his mother-in-law. So as well as trying to appear superior to everyone else, he's trying to make it clear to everyone else that yes. he is superior to them. And he's, he's totally missing the mark on how to do it, but maybe that's what he's trying to do. Yes, but somehow or other... The whole thing is just a bit awkward. Mm. It's not like the Bennets where you know exactly yeah. what's going on there. Yeah. It's interesting, in the 1995 movie version, there's a scene much later on when they're in London at, at one of the balls and you have this just this brief shot of Mr Palmer with his male friends, possibly his other prospective MP friends or something, and he's kind of, they're having a big shouty conversation. And you just get that brief glimpse that, He's not just the grumpy, taciturn person you see with his wife. Yes. He's more animated in different company. Yes. One other thing I was going to say about Charlotte Palmer, we're told right up front very clearly that she is pregnant and yes. how pregnant she is and when she's due to give birth. When you compare that to Emma, at least to me as a modern reader, if there were clues to Mrs Weston's pregnancy, I missed them completely. So yes. it's completely out of the blue that suddenly she's about to have a baby. Yeah, well, partly she wants to show Mrs Jennings as being earthy and as saying these sort of things, but there's nothing like that in any of the other books. Mm. Well, what I thought I'd talk about in the historical background part of this session is, in a sense, the meaning of the word sensibility, what it means, and I'm picking up on something Harriet raised when we were talking about these chapters, and that was, what is it that Marianne believes? What is it she cares about? But thinking about the term sensibility, at the time Jane Austen conceived this book, it was well known as the name of a very long poem uh, written in 1782 by, oh, she was a dramatist really, but sort of blue-stocking, Hannah Moore, who was 30 years older than Jane Austen. And in current scholarship, the term sensibility seems to be increasingly linked with the notion of what is now called sentimentalism. In the mid-18th century, you got this movement, which was seen as an attempt to arouse feelings of sympathy for other people. It's seen as being characteristic, say, of Goldsmith in The Vicar of Wakefield, where you your heart's supposed to go out to all the characters. It's also there, say, in Tristram Shandy, where, again, you've got all these... They're quite upper-class characters, but you're supposed to, to empathise with them. And Stern actually wrote a book called A Sentimental Journey, which... I'd tried to read at one stage but couldn't <laughs> and somebody else wrote a book called A Man of Feeling which was again about people going around and sort of empathising with these other characters. But increasingly in the latter part of the 18th century it was used to start to sympathise with the poor. 
George Crabbe, who was a poet that Jane Austen apparently was really keen about. He started to write about villagers and the problems they had and with poor people generally. And then you get William Blake with all his stuff about Little Boy Lost and The Chimney Sweeper and those sort of things. Actually, until sort of probably fairly recently, this particular movement was seen to be more or less the forerunner of what was called sentimentality in Victorian literature, you know, little children dying and little children suffering and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. Though apparently today it's being picked up as seeing also the kind of feelings that were behind more and more people becoming supportive of the anti-slavery movement. Well, this, even though it's called sensibility as well as sentimentalism and linked with Hannah Moore's poem, is really not at all the sort of thing we see Marianne as caring about. Mm. That just isn't what she cares about at all. What she cares about in scenery is towering cliffs and really, I suppose what we think of romanticism is art forms that inspire awe and grandeur and sort of lifting of the heart but also lifting of the soul. So what's the connection between sensibility and sentimentalism and romanticism? They're both about feeling, sentimentalism and romanticism. But, you know, what is called sentimentalism and that is often also joined to the idea of sensibility is having this outgoing feeling for other people, caring about the poor, caring about the forsaken, caring about that sort of thing, looking at sad, sad pictures and reading sad, sad poems and listening to sad, sad music. Whereas romanticism is basically seen as a higher form of art Mm. because it's inspiring and ennobling. And that is pretty certainly what Marianne is talking about Mm -hmm. when Edward's teasing her about these towering cliffs and so on. She's thinking of paintings like Turner's or also like if they're figurative or have a story, like the French Jericot and the Raft of the Medusa, which is this horrendous picture of people dying out at sea. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Also, though, another one of Liberty Leading the People, which uh-huh. was one for the French Revolution. Yes. And in literature, it's usually connected to works like Richardson's Pamela and Clarissa, which is about these people going through horrendous things and holding up against them and behaving beautifully and then when you get onto something like Scott where again you have all these heroic historic characters going through powerful emotions as well as doing great deeds and then still at the time Sense and Sensibility is written you start to get the Lake District poems lyrical ballads from Wordsworth and Coleridge and in Wordsworth again you get all this enormous response to nature, the sort of thing that you get in Turner or else to great heroic stories like Kublai Khan or The Ancient Mariner. Mm. One other author that turns up, of course, is Cooper. They mention him as a poet. But the difference here between the sentimentalism, particularly in the literary ones, is the reader is asked to share and glory in the strong feelings and to identify with these noble characters. And this is the sort of literature that Marianne admires. Yep. 
and this is what she feels justifies her own inclination to give full reign without disguise to her feelings. Mm. These are people who have emotions, they show their emotions. If you're reading Wordsworth describing, you know, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. These sort of seem a bit more sentimental, but, you know, he's feeling about daffodils. But you don't get ashamed of your feelings. You let everybody know what they are. Mm. But what I haven't found any evidence for, and this could be just, you know, my lack of reading, but nobody ever seems to have referred to it much, is that thing Edward says that she believes there can't be seven love affairs. Mm. It's almost as though it's something she's deduced for herself from all this literature. Mm. You know, and as Eleanor points out, it means that her father's marriage to her mother was not particularly appropriate. Mm. But on the other hand, the more general, particularly her view of the picturesque, is made very obvious in Edward's rejection of her idea, Mm. where he says, I like a fine prospect, but not on picturesque principles. I do not like crooked, twisted, blasted trees. I admire them much more if they are tall, straight and flourishing. I do not like ruined, tattered cottages. I am not fond of nettles or thistles or heath blossoms. I have more pleasure in a snug farmhouse than a watchtower, and a troop of tidy, happy villagers please me better than the finest banditti in the world. (laughs) What we're seeing here is Edward and so presumably Eleanor are standing for the sort of whole series of ideas that Romanticism was rejecting, which was, you know, the whole thing of the Enlightenment, the idea of the age of reason, as Edward is saying there. This desire for peace, order and prosperity, and that can be linked with the idea of reason, with the idea of moderation, with the idea of doing things properly and for the general good. People also say that Romanticism, particularly taking what Blake said, it was against the Industrial Revolution, but I honestly don't think the Industrial Revolution was impinging much on Marion's way (laughs) of thinking, whereas part of the undercurrent of this 18th century Enlightenment was a sort of a rejection, not of of religion, but of what they called religious enthusiasm, Mm. which was the kind of passionate belief in your own religious beliefs that had fired the wars of religion and the civil war in England and that people were sort of coming back from and saying, it's not worth it, you mustn't get in such a state about this thing, let's think about it reasonably. So at the far corner of that particular way of looking at the world, you get Eleanor's little view of basically you do what's appropriate, you do the right thing, Mm. you do what doesn't upset other people. Mm. So in a sense, if you want to look at sense and sensibility as two really broad views, what we're really looking at is romanticism against rationalism Mm. or the Enlightenment, Mm. and that sort of thing. So really it could have been called Romanticism and Rationalism. Yeah, but still. (laughs) Or or Passion and Practicality. Well, something like that. But Sense and Sensibility is a nice name for it. Well, I suppose Sense is not a bad word for the Enlightenment, Mm. but, well, it suggests reason. But Romanticism, rather than the implications of sensibility which have happened since, which have been this concern for the other. Mm. 
Oh, yeah, Marianne has really very little concern for the other, at least as comes through in the book. Well, yes. Well, not that Eleanor has all that much either. No. Well, yes, we don't know. Because I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you said. First of all, and this only just occurred to me when you said it, Edward and Marianne have this argument about what constitutes beauty. You know, she likes the craggy cliffs and he likes the snug farmhouses. Oh, yes. But are we given any evidence that Eleanor actually agrees with Edward? Eleanor does occasionally poke fun at Marianne for her exaggerated expressions. But what does Eleanor paint? Do we know whether Eleanor paints snug farmhouses or does she paint craggy cliffs? No, almost certainly she is going along with the fashion because, of course, earlier on, one of Marianne's complaints is that Edward doesn't really appreciate Eleanor's painting. Yeah. Which must mean that Eleanor is painting the kind of things that Marianne... Yeah, like. She's, she's painting the picturesque. Mm. But the other thing is that, as I said, there's a couple of different contrasts between Eleanor and Marianne. And one of them is Marianne's connection with beauty and her expression of beauty, which Eleanor somewhat opposes by gently poking fun at it, but never actually criticises Marianne for having those feelings. That sort of illustrates their characters. Marianne has this passionate connection with the beauties of art and nature. Eleanor, while perhaps in fact being aligned with Marianne's preferences, doesn't express them in such a meaningful, outgoing way. But the real difference the book is drawing, and I think it's really starting to come out even more in these chapters, and there's a bit that specifically articulates it, is the public behaviour and I think Eleanor has a very important statement in one of these chapters where she says my doctrine has never aimed at the subjection of understanding all I have ever attempted to influence has been the behaviour you must not confound my meaning I am guilty I confess of having often wished you to treat our acquaintance in general with greater attention but when have I advised you to adopt their sentiments or to conform to their judgment in serious matters so basically That is, I think, an important difference that Eleanor isn't saying she wants Marianne to think or become or agree with the Middletons and the Jennings of this world. She just wants her to behave in an appropriate manner to them. And then the opposite side of the picture we get is that Marianne, when she observes Eleanor's cool reaction to Edward's departure, it says that it appeared no more meritorious to Marianne than her own had seemed faulty to her. The business of self-command she settled very easily. With strong affection, it was impossible, and with calm ones, it could have no merit. So that, I think, is the big clash. The fact of Eleanor is not saying you don't have emotions, you just regulate them. And Marianne is saying, well, if you don't have emotions, it's easy to regulate them. But if you have passionate emotions like me, it's impossible, so you shouldn't even try. And I think that is articulated most clearly in these chapters and we're left in no doubt on what side the author comes down but then later in the book when we have the fallout of Willoughby and then of Edward that's when we see the effect it has on the two individuals that they've behaved the way they have and how the author is then showing through the events why she justifies the position she's taking. But I think that does tie into this to the extent that what Eleanor is disapproving of in Marianne is this enthusiasm, which was the centre of one of the things that the Enlightenment and rationalism said, yes, but you don't go by emotions. You go by reason. Yeah. 
that enthusiasm has these problems. Mm. So I think that is there then tying them back to the romanticism, rationalism join. And what about the opposition between male rationalism versus female hysteria? Or was that a later Victorian thing? That's once you're getting into gender. And I'm not quite sure where that comes up. But it's not part of these two broad things. Uh And Eleanor and Marianne are not interested in gender distinctions. They both take it absolutely for granted that, as with religion, men and women are equal in the sight of God. Also, the really broad philosophies apply to men and women equally. Mm -hmm. Marianne doesn't think, oh, I'm a woman, I shouldn't be thinking that. Because, after all, she's very critical that Edward doesn't appreciate things in the way she does, doesn't express himself as she believes a lover should. Yes. So, yeah, she's expecting that of him as she expected of herself. Yes. Since we did the last episode, I finally managed to watch the Bollywood version of Sense and Sensibility, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about some things from that that affect things earlier than this in the book. I actually had more difficulty than I thought finding it because the name of the film is, and I do apologise, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, in Tamil is Kandu Kondian Kandu Kondian, but on Australian Amazon Prime in any rate, that was not the name it was given. And I suspect what we had was actually a dubbed version into another Indian language, which was then subtitled in English. So that was a little complicating. Yes. So I had more difficulty than I thought finding it, given that I knew it was available on Amazon Prime, but I did find it and I did watch it. And I actually quite enjoyed it, but I do feel I have not watched any Bollywood, to be honest, other than Bride and Prejudice, which is very English Bollywood. So I'm not really up with the cultural traditions of true Bollywood, so I suspect there were a lot of cultural aspect of it I just completely missed or didn't understand but it picked up on a lot of points of sense and sensibility while at other times completely changing things in a very interesting way but one thing is I suspect this is probably the only Jane Austen adaptation ever that opens with a military helicopter landing combat a tripwire and a big explosion (laughs) This is not what we expect from our Jane Austen adaptations. (laughs) This was the Colonel Brandon character, who in this adaptation is called Major Bala. And it's very interesting. He is quite a different character, some of which I'm going to talk about later because it occurs later in the film. But the setup with him is you've had this military opening scene. When you slightly afterwards meet him in the context of the film, he is apparently suffering from PTSD. He is basically alcoholic. When he first meets Marianne, he is in fact drunk. And in that same scene, you learn that as a result of the opening scene in the movie, the explosion I talked about, he actually lost his leg in that explosion. And yet he has this quite miraculous recovery in that Marianne tells him to stop drinking and he does. And you see him throwing out all his alcohol and you see him exercising to get his fitness back, which is quite different from the book. Another interesting thing about this modernisation is that whereas the first two adaptations, as I've said before, didn't include Margaret at all, she was one of the characters that got completely cut, so the first adaptation we actually saw Margaret in was the Emma Thompson-Kate Winslet movie in 1995, 
But in this version, we do have a Margaret. And as in the 1995 version, she comes across as a more active character than in the book. She's a teenager. She's interested in things. Although in this one, she's a budding scientist. The only other thing I'll say at this stage about this version, another significant difference, is the departure from the Norland equivalent actually happens considerably later in the plot. The Willoughby equivalent character has come, has met with Marianne, has departed again. The Edward character has come, had a much longer relationship with Eleanor and departed. And only at that point do they leave Norland, essentially. And basically, if you look at it structurally, there's no Barton Cottage. From Norland, instead of going to a cottage, they go to the city. So it's like that's the equivalent of the trip to London. Yes. Except Mrs. Dashwood and Margaret are with them as well. Yes. So that's just an interesting change in the structure. Yes. But most of the plot points are met along the way. In terms of these precise chapters in the book, these five chapters, most of the adaptations cut them right, right back. Of the four direct screen adaptations of the book, which are, just as a recap, the 1971 television version with Joanna David and Kieran Madden, the 1981 television version with Irene Richard and Tracy Childs, the 1995 cinema release with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet, and the 2008 television version with Happy Morahan and Charity Wakefield. The 1995 one with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet doesn't have Edward's visit to Barton at all. It completely excises that from the plot. You may remember I said a while back that that first section, while they're still at Norland in 1995, while it still keeps to the same plot points of what happens, it takes a significantly larger chunk of the movie than you might expect, and they really use that to build up Edward's character. And in fact, some of Edward's dialogue from this section of the book is moved into the first section. And as a result, they've taken Edward completely out of that section, possibly to avoid the whole railway station aspect of people coming and going all the time. Well, yes, which is a bit of an embarrassment, I imagine. Yes. The other three versions, although they retain Edward's visit to Barton, in every single case, he's only there to stay one night, not a week. So even though they cut Edward's visit down to just one night, they all focus on having some of those discussions that we saw in the book to help bring Edward's character out. Sometimes they pick on one bit, sometimes they pick on another bit. All three of them do include the ring with hair that they believe to be Eleanor's hair in. Yes. One thing I have to talk about with the 2008 version and Edward's visit is, as you may remember, the 2008 version is directed by Andrew Davis, who did the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. And, of course, the thing the 1995 Pride and Prejudice is most famous for is Mr Darcy walking up from the lake, not wearing his coat and wet from having jumped into the lake. Well, they don't have Edward jumping into a lake in 2008, but what they do have is a shot of Edward having taken his coat off, so he's in his big romantic shirt sleeves, in the rain, chopping wood for them. Oh, right. so, <laughs> which is very over the top. And not very Edward, but... I think... no, particularly, particularly if Edward had arrived with a manservant <laughs> who, who could do any chopping that was needed yes. for them. Which, in this one, he didn't. But yeah, I just thought that chopping wood in the rain scene is clearly meant to be the equivalent yeah. of dust. Of, of, of looking at Edward being very sexy. Yeah. Another thing that all of these versions do, the Palmers and the Steels arrive pretty much simultaneously. 
you don't have that the farmers come the farmers go the steels come it's made much more coherent but you still get a little bit of the farmers before the steels really come onto the scene and in all of them it's more or less the same thing mrs palmer is very silly mr palmer is very grumpy mostly mr palmer is given lines he actually speaks in the book though not all of them I've got to say my favourite set of characterisation is 1995, the movie, yes. where you have Hugh Laurie as Mr Palmer and Imelda Staunton as Mrs Palmer. Hugh Laurie, of course, is very funny, and I do find Imelda Staunton slightly less irritating than some of the others who shriek and giggle a little bit too much for my taste. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the thing is that Mrs Palmer comes across as silly in the book. Yeah. But she doesn't come across... As particularly vulgar. She does laugh more. She's more good-humoured. She was all over them from the (laughs) moment she arrives. But not somehow in quite the oppressive way that Mrs Jennings is. Mm. Now, the Palmers don't actually appear at all in the Bollywood version. But there was one brief scene that I think might be a callback to them, which is in the Bollywood version... Like some of the other modernisations, a much bigger emphasis is placed on the fact that they've lost their money and so they have to get jobs. Yes. And in this version, the job Eleanor gets is initially as a receptionist in a computer company. Right. Um, She's actually qualified as a programmer, but she can't get work. She helps out some of the programmers and ends up getting a job as a computer programmer. But one of the programmers she helps is very pregnant. And I thought, well, maybe that is... Mrs. Palmer. Uh, yeah, that's just a call out to Mrs. Palmer. This is not a silly person, but it is a person Eleanor helps a bit. I thought that was maybe quite nice. Yes. In the other modernisation, the book Sense and Sensibility by Joanna Trollope, she's basically, with the Palmers, mimicked the relationship and just brought it up to date. So Tommy Palmer, as he's referred to, he's always looking at his Blackberry as compared to reading the newspaper as he does in the book. But being a Blackberry dates it pretty specifically between quite a small space of years. Yeah, today it will be his iPhone. He is quite short and impatient with Charlotte. On the other hand, later in the book, when their baby is born, they do present him as being an incredibly proud father. Is he even impatient with Mrs Palmer? In the book. When he talks to her about not palming your abuses of language off on me. I suppose so, yes. We've had a few comments from Joyce about the last couple of episodes. The first one was, she was wondering, why do they always use Edward's first name but Willoughby's last name? I think it's in terms of relationships that Willoughby is no relation to them. Edward while he isn't any sort of blood relation, is their brother by marriage. I think the same thing, because I also looked later in the book to when Robert turns up, and the narrator calls him Robert, but also Eleanor on one or two occasions, I think when talking to Fanny, says Robert. She doesn't say your brother, Mr. Ferrers. I think it is a relation thing. But that does also raise, we have Willoughby in this, and then in Pride and Prejudice, There's definitely at least one place where Jane, when talking to Elizabeth, says, my dearest Bingley. So she's using the last name, not the first name. By the time we get to Mansfield Park and Emma and Persuasion, they obviously in Mansfield Park where there's a lot of relations, they use first names. But when they're not on a first name basis, they don't just use the surname. They tend to use the title. And 
The other thing is, of course, in Emma, one of the most vulgar things Mrs. Elton does is refer to Mr. Knightley as Knightley, and Emma is just incensed by it. Yes. So I think that must, again, hark back to the 1790s original writing of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. By the time we get to the 1810s, the social manners must have just changed, and referring to a man purely by his surname was no longer acceptable, I guess. Now, another point Joyce made was, I was interested to hear your comment that John Dashwood was a villain because of the enclosure situation. What about the fact that he broke a deathbed promise to his dad and was perfectly fine with his stepmother and half-sisters living in poverty? I find the lack of social stricture strange. Wasn't there anyone to take him aside and point out he should be helping his family more? She then goes on to say, Fanny knows darn well what she's doing is wrong in leading him to break his promise and mistreat his family, but John's weakness makes him far too easily led. Does he feel any pangs of conscience? That point about lack of social stricture was something I hadn't really thought through because, yes, no one in their circle of acquaintance apparently has commented on it unless everyone is actually as nasty as Fanny and her mother. Alternately, after all, we don't know what the neighbours around Norland are thinking. They get out of their circle completely. Mm. I think Sir John probably has heard about it. I mean, why else would he be writing to them? It could well be that there's a lot of gossip going around that do you know what that awful John Dashwood has done? Mm. But John and Fanny just happen to mix with like-minded people who... Well, they don't mix with anyone much at all. I've been told later that they don't often give dinners. And also the point about does he feel any pangs of conscience? Oh, he does. He does, but I think he just won't let himself. That's why he thinks Mrs Jennings should leave them some money. He thinks Colonel Brandon should marry Eleanor. Mm. He thinks everybody should be doing things Mm. for him. In a way, he's handed his conscience over to Fanny. He will not feel pangs of conscience over anything that opposes anything Fanny says. He is suffering pangs of conscience with all this definite concern for them. Mm. And the last point she made is... Thanks for pointing out the utter weirdness of Marianne being the sort of guardian to Willoughby's illegitimate child. But then again, Darcy also ends up being the brother-in-law to the man who attempted to seduce his sister. So many elephants in the room that are never discussed. How very Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think that is actually commenting on how it's very Chinese comes back to what I said a while back about the choice of Ang Lee, the Taiwanese director, for Sense and Sensibility in 1995. While at first that seemed like quite a bizarre choice for such an English novel, in fact, I think the movie proved it was a very good choice because he was he was not just intellectually in touch with the point of the book, but in culturally. tune with it, culturally in tune with it. With yes, a lot of those attitudes, he doesn't think how weird, how mad. Yeah, thinks oh yeah. Well, I get that. I, I get that. Not that I think it, but yeah. I get it. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's the sort of thing people I know could think. Yeah. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 21 to 25 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneausten.com. You can email us at readingjaneausten.com 
or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.